This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan, on Gadigal land. And me, Tegan Taylor, on Jagera and Turrbal land. Today, do we hear enough about harms in clinical trials or too much? The power of linking big data sets and the importance of keeping them secure. How Australia has legislated for an embryo technology that pretty much doesn't in fact exist. And if it did, there are serious concerns about dangers. And millions of Australians have gone through a torrid few weeks following cyber attacks on Optus and Medibank Private. Sophisticated criminals, at least with a Medibank breach, have entered and stolen a range of potentially sensitive and very private data about members' health. But that's only a fraction of health data out there in the public sector, which has to be used to run the healthcare system, make healthcare more effective, and tie down causes of disease and illness in the population rather than individuals. This usually involves analysts and researchers accessing and aggregating multiple data sources without being able to identify any of the millions of people whose health data have been brought together. But how secure is this incredibly important activity? Professor Louisa Jorm is Director of the Centre for Big Data Research in Health at the University of New South Wales, which may have developed one of the world's most secure systems. Welcome to the Health Report, Louisa. Good afternoon, Norman, and thanks very much for the invitation to talk to you this afternoon. Give us a sense of the scope of the data that you're trying to make secure or you're working with. Basically, the data include anyone who has accessed um, the health system, anyone who's been to a GP and made a Medicare claim, anyone who's dispensed a a PBS subsidised medication, anyone who's had a hospital uh, stay. And diagnoses? Yes. um, Different data sets contain different levels of detail, but for example, the uh, hospital admission data sets do contain information about the principal diagnoses and also other conditions that um, individuals who've had that hospital stay have. So you're talking about hundreds of data sources? Probably more tens of data sources are used sort of routinely for aggregation, research and analysis in terms of routinely collected data. But then, of course, there's many data that are collected as part of research studies, clinical trials and so on. And they would run into the thousands rather than the hundreds. Who holds these data? What we call data custodian agencies, which in most cases are government departments, so state health departments, the Commonwealth Department of Health, would be the major custodians of these large-scale health data resources. Now, there's all sorts of people who would like to access that, from people who run the healthcare system to researchers who might want to, and Tegan's going to talk to one of those researchers after our conversation. And you've developed the five safe approach to security. Just describe what this is. We haven't developed it. It's actually something that is used internationally as a best practice approach um, by health data custodians and health research agencies to manage the risks associated with use of these large-scale data. But we have, in our centre, developed a particular approach to, this, to one of the five safes, which is the safe setting. But perhaps I'll just walk you through what the what the five safes are. Sure. Basically, they're, they're safe people, and that relates to making sure that people who can access these data have had training in research integrity, in the relevant legislation, in best practices and protecting privacy in their work. So they don't get in unless they know what they're doing. Exactly. (laughs) Um, And the the second safe is safe projects. 
And that basically means that research projects are actually reviewed not only by the data custodian agency, but also by a human research ethics committee. Um, and that what their job is basically to look at what are the potential benefits of that project and then what are the risks and what's the equation. You know, do the benefits outweigh the risks? And they're very interested in minimising the risks and in minimising the data that you have. So you have just enough to do what you need to do. And that's where the safe data come in. And that is around looking at what variables do you need to, do you need for what you're doing. And in most cases for research, you do not need variables such as name or Medicare number or certainly any financial information. So this sort of work does not really pose a risk of identity theft or financial crime, but there's always that risk because it is sensitive and personal health data. But if someone knows something already about an individual, even if there's no name there um, or no Medicare number, they may still be able to identify that person within a data set and therefore access sensitive information. And so the safe data principle is about minimising the data that you're given to what you need. But the key is this safe setting. That's right. And the safe setting is basically the the IT environment that you're using. And I, I guess what you were referring to earlier, Norman, was the, the Erica environment that we've set up in our centre. This is basically a secure environment, a secure remote access cloud computing environment that basically cuts off what you're doing from the outside world, from the internet, um, from email. You're in your own little bubble while you're analysing the data. And there's um, very secure mechanisms for data to be brought into your project and anything to be um, exported from your project. Um, so that's where we come to safe settings. So um, there's no internet Erica's searching, there's no nothing, you're in there and you're isolated from the rest of the world in a sense. You're isolated from the rest of the world and you're just working with the data that you've actually had approval to work with. And then... The safe setting actually provides a mechanism whereby nothing can be removed from that research space without the output actually being checked by an individual who's actually had training in what we call statistical disclosure control, can look at what's being proposed to take out, the data table, the, the, you know, the figure, the graphic, whatever's coming out, and actually check whether there's any risk of disclosing information about an individual or sensitive groups of individuals in that output. And unless they're satisfied about that, it doesn't come out of the safe setting environment. Now, there are tangible products which emerge from the ability to use data in this way, and you've got one which is called Your IVF Success. Your IVF Success, yes, is um, something that was developed by the team in the National Perinatal Epidemiology and Statistics Unit within our centre. It basically uses data from the Australian and New Zealand Assisted Reproduction Database. There's around 100,000 um, assisted ART treatment cycles annually in Australia. And so data about all of those cycles has actually been aggregated. And then what we've actually been able to do with that is identify the factors that, that drive the success of IVF in terms of the, 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 the features of the mother um, the father and so on. And we've produced this little calculator where you basically answer a series of questions and it provides you with an estimate of the, the chance that you may have of, uh, you know, a live baby as a result of ART treatment. And it's been incredibly popular um, with, with consumers and for good reasons. I mean, people really do need to have a realistic and unbiased idea of what their likelihood of success is before undergoing something that's not only expensive for them, but also potentially 
potentially very emotionally challenging and draining for for the woman and and partner and family. But needs that big data to be to be accurate. And just finally and briefly, where does this put us in terms of cybersecurity compared to other countries? I think what we have in place with regard to health data in Australia is in fact pretty much best practice internationally. Um, I think we have a really robust system system in place, and I think in many ways the the availability of newer cloud computing technologies actually allows us to put in place stronger security than we would have had in the past when data were distributed on various networks or even you know potentially on people's local computers. So I think although technology you know potentially does increase risks of cyber cyber crime and cybersecurity risks, it also provides us with tools to actually protect data. Louisa, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Thanks so much. Professor Bye. Louisa Joram is Director of the Centre for Big Data Research and Health at the University of New South Wales. Over to you, Tegan, to talk about some of the uses. Yeah, because what if using big data sets like this is part of your job? Because we, as we heard, linking different types of information is crucial to painting a detailed picture of what's happening in Australia. One customer of big data sets like the ones Louisa was just talking about is Rosemary Corder. She's part of the National Centre for Epidemiology and Population Health at ANU. And linking data is kind of her thing. Hi, Rosemary. Hello, Tegan. So can you give us an example of why linking big data sets is so vital? Yeah, so as we've just heard from Louisa, that there's a lot of data that's collected in surveys and for administrative purposes, such as census data, hospital admissions, cancer registry data, Medicare claims data and so forth. And each of these data sets on their own provide important data on the characteristics and the health of the Australian population. For example, from that we get how many women and men die each year, what's the incidence of cancer, how many scripts are dispensed each year under the PBS and so forth, all really important population health information. But by linking the data sets together and, again, emphasising the data still remain de-identified when we receive the data, we can build up a much richer picture of the health of, Australian, of Australians. You know, we can look at the ability, um, we have the ability then to look at patterns of health and healthcare use over time. And by doing this, we can answer many more questions that are important for health policy and practice than we otherwise could, and even for some clinical um, applications as well. I can give you just a brief example um, where mm. you think about heart attacks are common in Australia. And we can look at hospital admin data to look at, to count the admissions for these events. We know how often people are going to hospital for heart attacks. But say we want to do something about it and we're really concerned about the extent to which Australians who have a heart attack are actually receiving appropriate guideline recommended preventative medications. We can't answer this just using the hospital data alone. But by linking the hospital data to the PBS data, we can answer this question because now we know what happens when people are discharged from hospital, what medications they're on, are they continuing to take them, are there shortfalls? So it gives us a really good picture of what's going on in the Australian population. When we're hearing about data breaches, does this put sort of a, a chill down your spine where it's, as someone who really relies on these data sets to do your work? Yeah, look, I think as a member of the public, not as a health researcher, where we are all concerned when we hear about these breaches and it's obviously incredibly important um, for the community um, that we don't have these breaches. You know, if I had hours rather than minutes, I obviously can give many more examples of the value in analysing these data and, and we don't want to throw the baby out of the bathwater, so to speak. If we if we come paralysed by this, there will just be so much information that's lost. That, as um, Louise said, is really for the public um, and community benefit. None of these projects can go ahead unless they have ethical approval that are for the public benefit. And I think given the privacy and security concerns, I, again, it would be helpful 
you know, to listeners to really understand how researchers operate in this environment. And um, Louisa went through the five safes, but I, I, I really want to really emphasise that the data that researchers receive is has identifiable data removed. So none of the research that our team use at the ANU, um, it's, it's got many, many records and many, many people across Australia, but we have no names and addresses. We don't know who these individuals are. We know the characteristics of these individuals, such as their age, their sex, maybe their education level, outcomes about whether they're admitted to hospital and so forth, but we don't know who these individuals are. So, and that's a really important point. Another important point is we don't store the data on our local computers. We can't copy it and we can only really report on groups. We never report on individuals. So with groups, one of the things that your work really revolves around is understanding inequities in healthcare across Australia. We've only got about a minute, but can you tell us quickly about what you've found recently in terms of how much people are paying for healthcare across Australia? Sure. So our study was about affordability and equity and out-of-pocket costs under Medicare. And as we know, it's a big and growing issue for Australians. And even under Medicare, Australians pay over $6 billion in out-of-pocket costs for out-of-hospital services and medicines. And what we wanted to know was what the extent to which these costs relate to households' ability to pay. So we, could, we linked MBS and PBS claims data to census and other administrative data. And we could estimate for each household, um, their disposable income, and then what the out-of-pocket costs that we're paying in relation to that. And there's some good news. We found for MBS costs that lower and higher income households on average were paying about the same proportion of their income on these costs. So in a relative sense, it was fairly fair. But the picture was quite different for PBS. And we found the lower the household income, the greater proportion of, of their income they actually spent on these out-of-pocket costs, which does suggest that more could be done to improve the relative affordability. Certainly, there's been recent announcements around that. And the nice thing about this data is that we can then look down the track and see where some of these recent policy changes actually have an effect on this equity in the out-of-pocket costs. The value of your work at uh, in, in practice. Thank you so much, Rosemary, for joining us. Thank you, Tegan. Professor Rosemary Corder from the National Centre for Epidemiology and Population Health at the Australian National University. Before a new drug can come on the market, it has to jump through a few hoops, including clinical trials. These are designed to show whether the drug actually works, what dosage you need, and importantly, whether it causes any bad side effects or adverse reactions. Treatments that aren't drugs also go through trials, but the thing is we're not that consistent in how we report adverse reactions or the murkier category of adverse events where something happens to a trial participant but it isn't clear if it's caused by the treatment or not. The inconsistencies in adverse event reporting have implications for how we weigh the benefits and harms of treatments, as a recent article in the Medical Journal of Australia states. The lead author of the article is Christina Abdel-Shahid. Welcome, Christina. Thank you, Tegan. So what currently guides adverse event reporting in trials in Australia? So in Australia and around the world, there are certain guidelines that clinical uh, people running clinical trials must follow when they're reporting on the findings from their research. And one of those uh, requirements is to report on the harms. And what we've noticed is that in the vast majority of um, trials involving non-drug interventions in particular, there are major gaps with regards to reporting of harms. And even in some trials that involve potentially dangerous medicines such as opioid analgesics, there are cases where no harms are reported in those clinical trials as well. 
So, oh, that's really interesting because my reading had been that some some things were overestimating harms, like especially when it was drugs, and some were underestimating. But what you're saying is it's even messier than that. It is even messier than that. However, there are scenarios where there could be overestimation of harms when, for example, a clinical trial reports on uh, frequency of harms without giving an, ind an indication when those harms were reported by the individual participant. So we know, for example, with some drugs that they um, enter the system, enter the body, and then they exit the body. And we're really interested to know what harms took place when the drug was in the body. We're not so, um, although it's useful information, we're not going to attribute necessarily the cause of harms that took place after the drug has well and truly left the body uh, to the specific drug. So in that respect, when trials report on all adverse events without giving the reader an indication when those adverse events took place and we're finding that that's the case across the board, then it's really hard to make an assessment about whether that adverse event wasn't in, in fact uh, related to the drug or not. And of course this has big implications downstream because these are the sorts of things that you take into account if you're choosing whether to, to take a medication or to take a treatment or if your clinician is giving you advice on whether something's a good idea or not. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, clinical trials are um, essential basically to help inform and guide clinicians and patients about, you know, whether whether or not to use, use an intervention. But I think the important thing uh, to realise with, with clinical trials is that they're often not designed or set up to assess or determine important differences in harms. So what we see happening in clinical trials are observations of the things that we might expect, but it's also very important that once a drug has hit the market or um, whatever the intervention might be, that we continue those pharmacovigilance studies and see what's happening to the larger population because clinical trials will focus their attention on a particular population. They have specific inclusion and exclusion criteria Whereas once you start, you know, um, testing an, a treatment or using a treatment in a much wider population, then we begin to see much clearer pictures of the harms that are expected from a particular drug or device or anything else. It's fresh in our memory um, having watched the vaccine rollout for COVID. So what are your recommendations then? What needs to change? In general, what we noticed from our uh, evaluation was that a lot of clinical trials reporting on non-drug non interventions, things like psychological and behavioural trials, even some surgical trials were not reporting on harms at all. Uh, even though, you know, the guidelines for trials mandate reporting of harms regardless what the intervention is that's being tested. So the first step is to encourage a universal um, approach towards uh, reporting of harm so that it's clear to everyone carrying out these trials and, and reporting on the trials that harms is an essential part of the reporting process. Mm. There also needs to be some level of shared responsibility in the scientific community. So editors, before they go on to publish these papers, should check that there is a balanced um, reporting of information in, with respect to both the benefits and the harms. What we see is that there's always going to be information about whether or not an intervention was effective, but there's sometimes gaps with regards to um, the, the harms profile of that intervention. So it is also the, the responsibility of journal editors more broadly to ensure that that information reaches the public and is being published. Mm. Christina, thank you so much for joining us. 
Thanks for having me, Tegan. Dr Christina Abdel-Shahid is a Senior Academic Fellow in the School of Public Health at the University of Sydney. Last month, an Act of Parliament came into force which has become known as Mabes Law. It's a law allowing the process of what's called mitochondrial donation to be studied, tested and eventually implemented. The informal name of the Act comes from Maeve Hood, a young Victorian girl who has a condition called Lee Syndrome, which is usually fatal in childhood. There are many diseases of mitochondria affecting almost every organ in the body, sometimes profoundly. Mitochondria are tiny parcels of metabolism inside cells. They're involved in energy generation, but increasingly recognised to be at the centre of, for example, the ageing process, as well as coordinating the incredibly complex communication systems inside cells and probably between them. Maeve's parents lobbied for the right to detect mitochondrial diseases at the embryo stage and to engineer the embryonic, maybe even the egg cells, to receive mitochondrial DNA from a donor. It basically replaces the original DNA with new genetic material. It sounds straightforward, but it isn't. In fact, it crosses a line which has until recently been banned in Australia, namely genetic research and manipulation of reproductive cells, which can be transmitted to generations beyond the child who's received the donation. In the past, genetic research has been dead-end, if you like, for example, manipulating brain, immune or muscle cells, which stay with the person, and the genes involved aren't passed on to their children. Three researchers have written an editorial in the Internal Medicine Journal expressing major concerns, not least because Maeve's Law has raised expectations that such mitochondrial donation technology exists, when the researchers argue it's in fact a long way off and far from guaranteed as safe. One of the authors is Professor Paul Komisarov of Monash University. Welcome back to the Health Report, Paul. Hello, uh, Norman. It's a pleasure to be with you again. What is the... I mean, are there any children in the world born from mitochondrial donation? Um, As we... um as we believe, there is, at this stage, there's only been one single live birth associated with one of the available mitochondrial donation techniques, and this was a child born in Mexico in 2016. Um, the child was born under circumstances that were slightly difficult. Um, There was a rogue researcher from the United States who went to Mexico to circumvent the American laws. The child was born, was apparently um, healthy, but we know nothing more about that child, supposedly because the parents declined to allow the child to be tested um, subsequently. That's the only known live birth associated with any of the available mitochondrial donation techniques so far. So how far away is it? Um, Look, the techniques themselves have been under investigation for well over a decade, and there's quite a lot of information um, at a preclinical level. In other words, they're they're doing it in animals. I mean, it's effectively taking the DNA um, and and replacing it inside the embryonic cell. That's right. And we know that the techniques the techniques are, are, are increasingly developed, but also the, um, the increasing information that we've obtained shows that um, there are potential risks. And if anything, the um, awareness of the risks has increased over so the years. So what are the risks? 
Well, the risks are the ones that you've adverted to in your introduction, Norman. There's been, over the last few years, an increasing appreciation of the very wide array of functions that mitochondria play. Originally, it was just thought that mitochondria were the energy sources of the cells. But as you've just said, it's now known that they're involved in almost every cellular function. Um, and so they can be involved in neurological development, they can be involved in um, in cardiovascular disease, in, in hormonal disease, diabetes and various other things. In addition to that, um, there's the possibility that if there is some sort of disruption, if there's some unexpected adverse event, that is that if there's a disruption that in the genetic material or the interactions within the cell that have created a new disease, that may well be transmitted to the next generation as, um, uh, additionally. So not only are we playing with fire in the sense that this is a an immensely complicated system about which we're really only starting to gain an understanding, um, but the consequences are, are not just um, unpredictable in an individual case, but they could be transmitted beyond the... So, so in theory, you could have a bouncing healthy baby as a result, but 40 years later, you've got a health problem and then the, it's all out of the box because you might have thousands of children around the world having had the technique. Yes, I think that's right. And that's really why, um, why reproductive um, uh, um, genetic interference has been regarded um, as, as being the red, red line that we've got to be very, very wary about crossing in the future. So as you said in your introduction, this would really be the first, the first example of that. Now, these are promising technologies and the, the, the potential benefits are very great. But it does mean we've got to be incredibly careful um, to make sure that as we do or if we do make the transition to humans, um, we have to really go very, very carefully um, in um, making sure that we're doing it safely. Well, how would you know you're doing it safely if you've got a mitochondrial problem that might only emerge 40 years later? Um, so that's the problem with the development of any new drug, um, um, Norman, and that's why we've got very elaborate safety processes for the introduction of new medications and new therapeutic techniques in general. And we haven't always got it right, but mostly we do pretty well. There's very extensive preclinical testing that is in non-human animals or in or, or in humans, um, in human cells, in cell cultures or various other um, various other scientific um, preparations, when we've gained sufficient knowledge and confidence that we can then move um, to, um, a, to human testing, we go into very, very careful phase one testing. And if that seems to be safe, we go into phase two testing. And it's only at a much later stage that we go into larger scale so clinical the, testing. The other thing that you're concerned about is commercial exploitation. Yes, and look, the it, one it, it has to be recognised. This is an IVF programs we're talking about here. Sure, that, that's that's exactly right. Um, the you, you mentioned Lee's syndrome um, um, before. Lee's syndrome is a terrible condition that causes a great deal of pain and suffering for the children and for the families. 
Um, and clearly there would be benefits for the very small number of people who are affected by very severe mitochondrial mutations of that sort. But there are also other uses that are being promoted or at least considered um, for um, mitochondrial donation. There's a growing literature on the senescence of oocytes, that is, um, in um, um, egg So cell. that you might revive or rejuvenate them by putting young mitochondria into those cells. That it's been proposed that mitochondrial donation might be a way of rejuvenating um, ageing oocytes in older women who want to have babies. If that were the case, that could potentially be an extraordinarily lucrative commercial practice. Um, if so that's, I mean, that has to be considered. It's interesting. It's important. But the consequences there are hugely um, expanded, and if that's the case, that's even more of an argument for us to be incredibly careful at this stage. So take it slowly. Paul, thanks for joining us. The pleasure. Professor Paul Komisaroff is at Monash University in Melbourne, and that's the health report for this week from me, Norman Swan. And me, Tegan Taylor. We'll see you next time. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.